Welcome to the Parent Guide to GCC podcast. Today's guest is Satya Nijar and she's talking to us about self-harm awareness when it comes to being the parent of a teenager. This was originally broadcast as a live Facebook event and it can still be found on the Parent Guide to GCC Facebook page. Yeah, so um, I'm Satvia, nice to meet everybody. Um, and I deliver self-harm awareness training. I've been doing it for over a decade. Um, I've delivered to every possible group going um, from doctors, nurses, teachers, police, social workers. My main area is though within schools, um, state and independence, and I deliver to students, parents and teachers. And for parents who are listening to this session today, please do not get concerned. It's not the same session that I deliver to students. It's different, but we do talk about self-harm and suicide. But I do a lot of parent awareness and staff CPD sessions because self-harm is becoming more apparent, more common. You know, it's it's a big topic. And for a long time, it was highly stigmatized. The stigma is still there, but people more are more open to learning about it and equipping themselves. And that's what this is about. Attending this session doesn't mean your child's self-harming. You know, it's about equipping as a parent what to do if it does happen and how to support your child if they're supporting a friend, which many often are. I mean, I alluded to the fact that I, uh, in a 15-year career, I saw self-harm, you know, saw the actual effects of it um, just once. Um, because I think when it does happen, because it's a child protection issue, it's, it's kept, obviously it's not kept quiet, but it's kept between the people who need yes. to know about it. Um, but obviously it is a huge issue. And as you say, it's, it's getting bigger. Um, I think, you know, you, your experiences, um, and I don't mean any disrespect here, I think things are changing, but it does vary from school to school. Now more so, you know, schools are more pastorally aware, I'm not saying they weren't when you were teaching, but a lot more focuses on mental health and it's much more open. Um, so more staff are aware, but I have seen in some schools, it's still very private, very kept in, which is a detriment to the child in a sense. Um, but is it becoming... Is it a bigger issue than it ever was? It's hard to say, you know, we're more aware of it because more staff are being mental health awareness trained. They're picking up on signs of distress more so than they were, say, when I was younger. You know, so it's more likely to be picked up upon. Children are having assemblies from people like me. We've got children's mental health this week. Kids are being encouraged to come forward and disclose that distress often to someone at school. So I think that's why the numbers might be rising, but we can't argue the impact of things like the pandemic, things like different stresses to what we had when we were growing up, no matter what our ages are. You know, it's a different life for them. And yes, you've got the, you know, doomed social media, but that in itself is a pressure. But remember, self-harm has been existent for many a years. It's not a new phenomena. It was going on. But let's say in the 70s, 80s, people were putting asylums out of the way. Or put in prison you know so it's it's just seen very differently now to what it was instead of it being some people still see it this way but a problem which needs to be pushed away it's seen as a distress which needs to be managed and dealt with yeah absolutely so if you were talking to parents in a school where would you normally start discussing this what do you mean where would the conversation actually start uh, where would you where would you begin to to talk about what parents need to know? You know, what's your usual first step into beginning this discussion around self harm? Well, you can start with a hands up. Um, who's come across it? Uh, either personally or professionally. I don't know what people do in their lives. 
and I'm yet to go to a room where under half of parents and under half or three quarters of students have put their hand up. Um, and then before we go, even though parents come to these types of sessions, whether it's half an hour, full day, half a day, two hours, they want tools and tips. How to support my child? What do I do? How do I protect my child? And my argument, whether it's with parents or professionals, is you can't support someone if you don't know what it is you're supporting them with. You know, so firstly, I get the foundation of do we know what it is that we're talking about when we're saying self-harm? And parents are no different to professionals that I deliver to. I am yet in 10 years. And if I give you some kind of idea of numbers, in 2019, I delivered to 15,000 people. I'm yet to walk into a room where someone has hit the definition nail on the head. There's always debate. So I think my first point is making sure we know what it is that we're talking about before we go into the support. Awesome. In that case, go for I'm not even going to attempt to hit the all right, so um, bearing in mind, I've got no slides, so this is all knowledge. Um, so hopefully I get it all right. Um, you know, self-harm is a really broad phrase, uh, phrase. And, you know, for different people, it means different things. So the common things that parents, carers will say will be things like the cutting, but then eating disorders, drinking alcohol, drugs, then risk-taking comes up as a side heading. And that's things like running off with friends in the middle of the night, you know, posting things online, uh, criminal risk-taking, truancy, provoking fights, sabotaging relationships, dangerous relationships, sex, and all that comes into it. Um, you know, and fine. But then they are all not actually forms of self-harm because that's answering a different question. That's saying what has the potential to cause harm to oneself, which isn't the same as what is self-harm. So when I deliver training, uh, my training's based upon best practice and clinical guidance. So I work from the NICE, that's the National Institute of Clinical Healthcare and Excellence. I work from their guidance, which is a medical guidance. And that's what people like CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, Adult Mental Health Services, doctors, nurses, stuff like that will be working from. And the clinical guidance is actually narrower. And when we're talking about self-harm, we're talking about the definition is self-poisoning or self-injury, an intentional act of self-poisoning or self-injury. And so suddenly we remove quite a few things. And to some people's surprise, I will not be saying, talking about anything to do with drugs, plus ABC, alcohol or eating disorders. So overeating, undereating, starvation, purging, anorexia, bulimia, and categorized eating disorder, stuff like that isn't included. And that's because they are wider forms of self-harm, but we're talking about the clinical definition, okay? Services are set up differently. If anybody here has ever experienced someone with an eating disorder, you've got specialist eating disorder services, specialist services for drugs and alcohol. And even the way people speak, if I was anorexic, I wouldn't say I self-harm. I'd say I've got eating disorder, so you self-categorize. Hmm. Whereas if I was cutting, I'd say I self-harm, categorizing it's that behavior. So we won't be talking about drugs, alcohol, or eating disorders. We also won't be talking about any forms of risk-taking behaviours, because even though they have the potential to cause harm, either the individual to themselves or by others, county lines, grooming, sexual exploitation, stuff like that, is not seen as self-harm. However, if your child's engaging in any of them behaviours, you're not going to go, oh, phew, at least you're not cutting, you're going to investigate, you know, because it could lead to... Firstly, harm from others. Secondly, them turning towards a wider forms of self-harm, the drugs, the alcohol, the eating disorders, and or self-harming in the forms that I'll be talking about. 
Um, but like I said, going forward, I won't be talking about them. Before I do give you some examples of what I am talking about, it is important to say, I don't know who's listening, whether it's now or later on, do look after yourselves. You know, I don't mince my words um, and I can't make self-harm pretty. Um, so no pictures or anything come up, but I will be talking about quite tough things. So if there's any kids, please don't have them around um, or vulnerable people. So self-harm, breaking it into definition, self-poisoning, taking away the drugs and alcohol by ingestance and non-ingestance. Non-ingestance, drinking bleach, windscreen wiper fluid, shampoo, washing up liquid, coolant from the car, stuff like that. Ingestance, tablets, self-poisoning, overdosing. Um, whether that's paracetamol, penicillin, or something else, it's anything. And please do remember, one more than the prescribed amount is technically an overdose. Sometimes complacency can set in, oh, they just took three, they just took two, they just took, there's no just to overdosing. Any overdose should be taken seriously and medical attention sought. Don't know if they're telling the truth or not. Then you've got self-injury, easier to describe, potentially harder to hear. And again, I apologise, but it'll be wrong for me to miss things out. Things like cutting, burning, scratching, head banging, hair pulling, picking, biting, pinching, hitting yourself, whether that's slapping, punching, hitting yourself with objects when I get my phone and hit myself or a brick, punching walls, kicking things, dropping things on you, trapping body parts in doors and drawers. All of them types of behaviours about creating bruises or breaking bones, inserting objects into any orifice of the body, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, genital areas or creating a wound, I cut my arm open and shove a pen inside. Swallowing foreign objects, what do people swallow? The same things they insert, glass, razor blades, wire, pen, batteries. And then one more um, is tying a ligature, tying a noose around one's neck, a ligature, tightening it, and then releasing that ligature when they feel the functions have been met, or tying a ligature around a limb to constrict blood supply. So I tie something really tight around my little finger till it swells, goes blue, and then release it. And these are all forms of self-harm and there's many more. And it's not, oh, you know what, we've got 10 kids who are cutting and they all use a razor blade on their forearm. 10 kids could cut using different implements. 10 kids could cut using the same implement, but in different ways. One superficially scratching, the other's creating a wound that requires stitches. For another, it's about the depth of a wound. For another, it's about the length. For another, it's about the amount of blood they lose. So even when we break it down, it's still extremely complex. It's not you've met one, you've met them all. You know, it can be so, so varied for the individual. So they're the types of behaviours and they're right. intentional acts. You know, the person that means to do them. Um, but we don't say deliberate anymore. We don't say deliberate self-harm because that's a negative. It's an intentional act and it only needs to happen once for it to be deemed as self-harm. Now, there might be parents listening to this going, well, my child has done it X amount of times. We went to CAMS and they said no. And that's sadly because of the threshold and the pressures CAMS are under. You know, they're not able to take every person. But not every young person will also need mental health input either. You know, it doesn't mean they're going to get a diagnosis of, you know, borderline personality disorder or depression or something else. In the first instance, it's a sign of distress for the vast majority we have to talk about the vast majority. There's always going to be a minority who tried it because their friends tried it or they saw it online or they just wanted to see what it was like. Just like there's some people who tried a fag when they were 14 because they just wanted to give it a go. But they're like, it's not for me. But we won't know if that child's in the minority unless we have that conversation. And even then, it's still worrying that they felt they needed to do that, to belong and get that, you know. But 
never underestimate, don't wait for it to happen one more time. Have the conversation. So if left untreated, um, is there a pattern, generally a pattern of behaviour where it, they start ramping it up? So it's... And what do you mean untreated? What do you mean by untreated? Um, so it's not been you know, noted. Um, so nobody spotted it. The friends haven't spotted it. They have harmed. Are they likely to keep going, but maybe making a deeper cut, uh, making it more painful, a bigger bruise? The level. Um, it's difficult because one, the vast majority of people who self-harm hide it. It's a very private behaviour. And if they do start disclosing it, that can be an indicator that their distress has increased or they're trying to communicate that I'm struggling. You know, most people don't tell anybody. So if they do, it's, that's a communication. I'm struggling here. Hmm. Is there a risk of escalation? Of course there is, just like with anything else. You know, can I give you a pattern? Absolutely not because it's so unique for each individual. You've got your clear links of if the distress in that person's life increases, it may lead to an increase in the frequency or intensity of their self-harm, which would kind of make sense because they're, they're feeling crapper, you know, they're gonna think that's not working or if they're not feeling the functions of the self-harm anymore. So I was scratching myself and I was getting the functions from it. It's not working anymore. I need to up it, I need to up it which in turn increases the risk to the individual. But each person is individual. You know, it's really important to remember that. One person may only self-harm. From research, we know people self-harm, often self-harm on more than one occasion. And especially if they disclose to someone, by the time the person finds out, let's say a parent, their child has often been self-harming for a period of time, whether that's days, weeks, months, or sadly years. But does it continue this is that their lifelong pattern no not necessarily let's not be pessimistic here you know for one person it can be an ongoing journey there's no denying that they self-harm when they feel crap and then that's what they just keep going back to but for another person it could be that episode that pandemic where they self-harm them exams that period of bullying that divorce that death you know and that's there's a clear trigger event and they self-harm for that period but if they overcome that distress, manage it, and hopefully learn other mechanisms to manage their distress, and they don't continue. But I can't give you a hard and fast rule as to you know how long it carries on for because it's so unique for each person. But the truth is, yes, the sooner someone gets support, and support will vary from individual to individual, from a chat to a friend, family member, professional, to inpatient setting, medication, the sooner they get the support, the more likely they are to develop other strategies, but also manage that distress. Because if you don't manage that distress, it's not just about developing other strategies, you've got to deal with the crap that was happening. Otherwise, the next time there's some crap that happens, it's going to add and then double simmer and lead to increased distress. So in terms of, you you talked about the, the functions, what, what they're yeah. getting from, from doing it, what, what is the usual no i was going to say yeah. usual there isn't going to be a usual but um are there any particular uh, reasons why oh. no i know what you're saying so yeah what are the functions of the behavior and this is something again that parents carers professionals struggle to understand and that in itself becomes a bar barrier to providing support because parent carer finds out their child self-harming the instinctive response is stop that behavior how is this helping you 
and why it's so hard for the individual. And I know we're talking about young people, but this is across the ages. Why it's so hard for that person to stop is because in that moment, it's serving positive functions for them, as hard as that may be for someone to understand. So before I give you the functions, I'm going to try something and hopefully you two and anybody else can join in. If you're having a crap day, yeah, a lot of people do. On that crap day, people have this moment where they think, oh, when she shuts up, when I get out of here, when we finish this, sort of the kids out, sent that email, I'm going to, you know, that kind of moment in your life. So on your crap day, what's your I'm going to? What's your thing? I won't judge. I'll tell you what I do. I scream at my child nitpick at her for breathing too loudly blinking too slowly you know all them kind of things she goes upstairs in the mood i then used to smoke and now i vape and then i eat and i eat the most amount of crap i can possibly find in the home so that's what <laughs> i that what would have been. i'm on a healthy eating kick at the moment hmm. with the exception of if i've had one of those kind of days i will get myself a glass of wine in the evening that will be my go-to like that just to kind of de-stress yep. Uh, looking at the child or children um, is definitely high on the list uh, and then generally I just tend to close the door and try and keep myself because I know I'm in a mood yeah. so rather than um, yourself. put it on to other people I yeah, just I, I, I know it so I just go and shut myself away and get over yeah. it crush some candy so, so yeah. you're kind of saying well you're answering my second question with three different people yeah, and our crap days could have been very different. And it doesn't matter what it was, but it was our crap day. It was our distress and distress is subjective. I asked you what you did on your crap days and we do different things. Why do you do what you do on your crap day? Why do you drink wine? Why do you isolate? Why do you crush the candy? Why do you do these things? Because it works for us in, as individuals. And I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, habit to some extent as well. It's, you know, because it has worked in the past, it will then work again in the future because you get that positive reinforcement. It makes you feel better. Um, and Paul was saying you take yourself away because you don't want to take it out on others. Yeah. So I could argue that what you're doing is to try and prevent causing pain to others, not necessarily physical, but even like snapping at people. You're trying to avoid that. Yeah. So if I say this to you, regardless of what your crap day was, is it fair to say what you and I do on our crap days could be seen as our coping mechanism? Yeah. we did it it works so we go back to it yeah. other people may even know what we do just like when i said i eat junk paul you pointed at um oh, <laughs> paul pointed at emily and was like well, that's her you know so other people know it like when i smoked others would go why don't you go and have a cigarette yeah it's my coping mechanism i'm oh, stupid i'm gonna do it because on that crap day we needed some control you can't control me rambling on, the internet playing up, the kids crying, the drama that happened, but you can control the fact that you shut yourself away in a room. What wine you drink and how big that bloody glass is. That's in your control. It's a relief of the negative feelings you were having. Yeah. I just want to feel better is what people say. It might not make you feel better, but in that moment, you get a temporary relief of them feelings, which gets you through. It can be seen as a release. You're letting it out. Some people cry, some people shout, some people slam things around, some people do that sick thing called exercise you know to release emotions other people simply talk on your crap day can be seen as your distraction when you're playing candy crush you're not thinking about stuff you're just focusing on playing that and for a few minutes everything goes quiet other people say things like i want to lose myself in the tv show you know do stuff like that afterwards you haven't it's not been erased from your mind but you've been able to regroup to feel something other than the crap feelings you were feeling at peace chilled relaxed numb 
not promoting it, but drinking alcohol. Crying, talking can also give feelings. Self-punishment, you just ended in healthy eating. So if you have that bloody glass of wine, you're going to feel really bad. But in that moment, it worked, yeah? Next day, you might feel guilty. Self-punishment is if you're staying up until four o'clock in the bloody morning watching crap on TV when you've got to be up at six, you're shattered the next day, drinking on a school night. But in that moment, it works. Prevention of causing pain to another, you take yourself away so you don't take it out on those around you. And finally, it's your way of communicating emotional pain, stress and distress. When I walk into my house and the first thing I do is go, why is a bloody hallway light on? My child knows I'm peed off. Yeah, she knows that. Whereas, pointing, finger pointing going on the camera. <laughs> two peas in a pod. You know, she knows I'm peed off. For someone else, the communication might be the classic parrot line. I'm not making dinner cereal tonight. You're communicating. Or if you just go to your room and shut the door. Or if you walk in and grab the bottle of wine without a glass. And this is why, <laughs> not going that bad yet. <laughs> yeah, and this is why people self-harm for them functions I've just given. Them functions are taken from research. I haven't sat here and made them up. And getting parents, professionals to be able to relate to the functions brings down a barrier in providing support. In that moment, you have to respect as difficult as it is, self-harm is serving positive functions for that individual. And these functions, it's not about stopping them because if you simply focus upon stopping the behavior, if that is your sole goal, I must stop them cutting, burning, scratching, head banging, and then it's better. What you've actually done is stop them coping. And please do not get me wrong. There is a time and a place that you have to intervene. And there might be parents listening to this who have had advice from professionals in removing things from the home, locking away um, sharps or medications, doing frequent checks on their child. But what they're often not told about is the response a child has, which might be anger, frustration. The child looks for alternative strategies, increases risks to themselves. Just like if I came up to you and said, you're not bloody having that wine and you can't be on your own. You're not going to go, why, thank you, Satvia. I feel great now. You're going to get peed off. You're going to start plotting. You might lash out out the blue. It's not bloody out the blue, is it? So we must understand why young people might have this response as well. You know, in that moment, it is their coping strategy. And it's about helping them find alternative ways with dealing with distress. But it's not going to happen overnight. That's why often the focus is on reducing risk, suggesting alternative strategies whilst they get ready to deal with the underlying distress, which can take a period of time. So, I mean... If we take our daughter, for example, she's 12 and you know, pretty certain oh, she, she's not self-harming. In terms of being proactive as a parent, what would we do? Would you recommend that we talk to her about this long before it ever became an issue? Or is being proactive the important point here and explaining or talking openly about what it is and what it might achieve? Or discussing coping mechanisms. I think, you know, um, parents, and I'm a parent, you know, my daughter's 20, you know, it's, it's not an easy topic. I mean, obviously, in our house, it's different because this is what I do for a living. Um, and we've both gone through our own mental ill health, you know, so we've been through the struggles ourselves. But the thing is, don't be fearful in chatting to, to your child about things around mental ill health, mental health in general, self-harm and suicide. 
because I have, oh, my child's too young, you know, they're only 11. No, they're not too young. I deliver tomorrow morning for World Mental Health Day. I'm delivering to year sevens. And one of the first things I will ask them is put your hand up if you know someone who's self-harmed. And I promise you, it will be minimum half of the year group, okay? They know about it. It just becomes a stigmatized topic. I am not saying you need to go into depth and give them all the different methods, but simply saying, listen, I just want to remind you, if there's ever anything you want to talk about or you're worried about yourself or want to be friends, and they're not just saying, leaving it there, saying, you know, and that includes stuff like self-harm, suicide. If there's any questions you want to know more, please do come to us. You know you can talk to us. And if you can't, here's some useful websites and apps. And I'm more than happy to provide the group with some resources that they can look at and, you know, share with their children as well. And in regards to general distress, Paul, it might be about letting them know, yes, you can always come and talk to me. But let's be honest, I kids sometimes don't want to come and talk to us because they're worried about the consequences. And yes, they don't want to talk to someone at school because they're going to snitch on them to you. So it's about saying, yes, you know what? There's lots of resources out there. Parents can often be fearful about technology and the internet, especially with self-harm and suicide. It's encouraging them. That's if they don't know where to go. So let's tool our kids up. Just like I taught my daughter how to ring 999 before she ever needed to ring 999. She knows that if she is struggling, yeah, she can come to me. These are the people at university. These are her friends, but also 85258, crisis messenger service, papyrus around suicide awareness. If she's concerned about a friend or herself, you know, you've got Samaritans, you've got Childline, you give them the resources and that can be for them to have themselves or to pass on to friends. I've many a time told my daughter, my daughter texts me, mom, worried about my mate. What shall I say to her? send her this you know so it's just about keeping the conversation open yeah that would be incredibly useful to have if you've got a little summary or anything for yeah, we can have it somewhere we can keep because i mean i know she may only be in year seven but she's been part of group chats on whatsapp where one of the kids that she doesn't know especially well because she's just joined this year group um has said something that has really worried her and she's come straight to us and said you know what do I do how do I do this and yeah it was it's it's a really difficult conversation because you want to make sure you're giving them the right advice and not making the situation worse and so on and obviously as teachers we both are very aware of the process that school will therefore go through so we've kind of made sure that we've told the right people so that they can be dealing with it in a more official capacity as well but you know, you're right. There's no such thing as too young to be having the conversation. So, giving primary schools, you know, I'm getting so many primary staff coming forwards and training and going into primary schools, prep schools, nursery staff attending because of the increased. Um, well, they're noticing self harm more. You know, they're seeing it happen, mm -hmm. and they're wanting advice on how to support them. It doesn't just magically start in year year seven. It can happen mm -hmm. at any stage. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, out of interest, um, yeah. I, I see it as a, a, a and you're probably going to tell me I'm wrong here, I see it as a, a more of a female, uh, young female, teenage girl trait. Is that true or am I way wide of the mark? No, you're not wide of the mark if you go based on the statistics that we have, you know, and obviously statistics are limited because that's people who come forwards and disclose. And the problem with that is we know around mental ill health, women are more likely to disclose and seek support than their male counterparts. 
I mean, when you look at suicide rates, it's um, one to three female to male, 76% of UK suicides are men. You look at self-harm rates, it's one to three male to female. But lads self-harm, you know, I'm getting, I'd say over the last three years, more lads come and disclose to me at the end of an assembly than females. You know, more boys are coming forwards and describing their behaviours. And another interesting thing is often because people see self-harm as a very tunnel vision, cutting overdosing, the classic punching of walls is anger, aggression, manly. But actually, if you ask someone, why did you punch that wall? So I don't punch your face, prevention of causing pain to another. Control, distract, it's all the same functions, hitting objects. Mm. Um, lads cuts, lads insert, all of the things happen. It's just that they're less likely to disclose. But thankfully, over the last few years, with all the campaigns that are targeted towards males, reducing stigma, famous people coming forwards and speaking about their distress, men, it's encouraging lads to come forwards and disclose more. And they do, given the right platform. But again, I argue the culture starts at home. I've grown up in an Indian home. You know, I'm South Asian, where men are big and strong and women are slightly inferior. And I've seen the impact even on my own family. I've got four sisters and a little brother. And my brother was, you've got to be tough, stop crying. You know, big boys don't cry. And all that, it has an impact. So being mindful of the language that we use at home. Oh, don't be daft, you're not doing that. You're six foot three rugby playing lad. It's a girl thing, you know. It can happen to anyone because of anything. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, as a parent, or yeah. as, a, you know, a teenager who's perhaps, you know, vaguely worried about a friend, what are the early warning signs usually? Just in a more typical presentation, what's the sort of thing to keep I an mean, eye out for? I'd love to be able to say, okay, you'll notice long sleeve clothing and they're spending more time in their room, listening to dark, dark music, not attending their school. Right. <laughs> I think instead of looking for signs and indicators of self-harm, we should be looking for signs and indicators of distress. If we focus on looking for self-harm, also you've got to remember, self-harm can happen on any part of the body, internally or externally, you know? So it's important to remember that. I've self-harmed since I was 12. You know, looking at me now, you wouldn't see self-harm on me. But, you know, if I rolled up my sleeve, you would. But then when people start focusing on my arms, I started overdosing. I simply changed my behaviour. You know, you won't always see it. So instead, as parents, carers, what we should be looking for are signs and indicators of distress, which isn't necessarily they stop opening, um, coming downstairs in the morning, stop saying good morning. A change in your in behaviour you're changing the usual behavior for your child. So I couldn't get my words out. And that could be anything, you know. If your kid is normally always late to breakfast and now is sitting there promptly at 7.30 sharp, that's going to be weird, yeah. But I don't mean you go and jump on them and go, oh, you're here at 7.30, is that because you're self-harming? No, don't be weird. But what you might <laughs> say is, you know, I've noticed, you know, I'm really pleased that you're down early, but I just wanted to check in with you. Is everything all right? You want to have a chat i'm here you're saying you notice them and that's really important notice the subtle changes because kids are very good i do it with them in sessions where they do this just like we do i'm fine i'm all right because what they say from my experience is if i say i'm not fine i get an interrogation my parents starts doing my bloody heading and they don't want it 
wouldn't it be nice if they could say, actually, I'm not all right? And we respect that and say, okay, but if you do want to talk, I'm here. But that parent urge just jumps, oh, what's wrong? Tell me now, don't leave the kitchen until you tell me exactly what's wrong. What is it? What is it? You must know. Then they feel really overwhelmed, under pressure, struggle. So pick up on early signs of distress, changes in their usual behavior. Obviously, any injuries that you may notice or if you find things in their room, don't assume, okay, check in, ask them about it, but take some time out first to be calm, all right? You don't want to be dragging them back from school, panic phone calls. You need to be in a calm frame of mind and ask them about it. Don't shout, talk, and appreciate they may not be ready to talk. If it was theirs, you know, you find hollow, empty medication packets, broken razor blades, the stereotypical things. But again, don't jump to conclusions. You know, it's important to have a calm conversation with them. So it might be useful for you to talk to someone first before you chat to your child. Hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to. Yeah. I think, I think something that's important to remember as well is, if I may, and the relationship between self harm and suicide. Because for a lot of parent carers and professionals, it can be you find out your child's self-harming and often it's a phone call from school and it's like, oh shit, they're going to end up killing themselves. You know, that kind of immediate jump, which then leads to the response of I must stop them and the sole focus becomes on stopping and then you end up in that whole cycle. There is a link between self-harm and suicide that can't be denied. People who self-harm are at greater risk of suicide than people who don't harm. But then people who smoke are at a greater risk of lung-related diseases than people who don't smoke. But not smoking doesn't make you immune. And not self-harming doesn't make you immune to suicide. But the link is there. But we must remember that from research, the vast majority of people who self-harm do not want to end their own lives. If anything, they will say, if they are feeling suicidal, and not all of them will be, they'll say, actually, self-harm is keeping me alive. It's stopping me from ending my own life. There's a very clear difference between the two. It's the intent of the behaviour. With self-harm, the intent is often about getting through to tomorrow, seeing a tomorrow, getting through this cycle. Whereas suicide, the intent is to end one's own life. Obviously, self-harm carries risks. Yeah, I gave so you a whole, whole spectrum of behaviours in regards to self-harm, you know, from cutting, burning, scratching to tying a ligature. Someone who's tying a ligature is at much greater risk of serious medical harm or death than the person who's scratching themselves. If they die as a direct consequence of their actions, that doesn't automatically make it a suicide. That's down to the coroner to show that in that moment they intended on ending their own life. Don't assume if your child is suicidal or not. And best practice does say we should be asking about suicide when presented with self-harm. But people often struggle with that. And that's fine as a parent, but don't be surprised if a professional asks your child that question. They're not putting ideas in their head, they're being responsible. Yes, it's one of the first things that they ask if you are likely to be diagnosed with depression as well. It's, uh, mm. it's just making sure that the protection is then in place, which is why they ask. Yeah, so, it's responsible. So in terms of first stages, if you uh, are aware that your child is self-harming, it's the first time you come across it, what would be your immediate action plan as a parent? So 
are you going with a child it's been disclosed by someone like school or you found out we found out however child comes to you um either, no matter how you do it the key things are to remain calm don't shout keep your emotions in check now majority of the time the child's been doing it for a period of time so as long as you're not sitting in a and e after a massive incident you have got some time to process think and hopefully chat to someone close to you about it because if you go with the instincts of i'm going to have this conversation right now because i've just found out now your emotions are going to be heightened and they're going to impact upon your child and potentially the relationship you and your child have not letting your emotions overtake is so important. I've seen so many responses and not great ones, and that's no fault of the parent. They didn't know what else to do. But saying things like, if you cut yourself one more time, it's like you're cutting me. You know, I've heard that being said. And every time you hurt yourself, you're hurting me. And think about your mom, your dad, your brother, your grandma who's dying in hospital. All these kind of things are adding guilt to the child judgment and all these kind of things and guess what the child's most likely to do after that conversation self-harm because they've been worthless and rubbish and low so keep your emotions in check self-harm for the vast majority is a symptom of underlying distress it's not the problem the weird analogy i have is if i'm your child and i start crying now you're not going to have a massive conversation about how great my tear ducts are working yeah you're going to probably deal with my snot and tears by giving me a tissue allow me to calm down and then if you're really nice you'll say something like do you want to talk about it and i'll probably say no and then you'll say are you sure and i'll go yeah so you'll give me a hug and you'll say okay but if and when you're ready i'm here and i've always got some tissues and it's that same kind of response we're going to have towards self-harm. Obviously, reducing risk, you want to keep your child as safe as possible. But if we're looking at the medically superficial types of self-harm that's often presented in one's home, you're asking, you're saying, I'm here for you. You deal with the first aid side of it first without judgment, without, without being harsh, care, compassion, dignity, respect. It's an injury like any other. But it's not the time for an interrogation. How did you cut it? Why did you cut it? When did you cut it? The communication is, I'm in distress. And you see that. Once you've dealt with the first day, do you want to talk about what's gone on today? They might say no. They probably will say no. And that's fine. It's all right. But, you know, we are here and here's a crisis messenger service. And you know you've got so-and-so at school. But do you want to do something else? Because you know sometimes when you're upset, you don't want to talk. You just want to watch a crap movie on TV and eat some junk. And that's supporting your child as well. My daughter went through poor mental health. My daughter was detained in mental health. I've seen it as a parent. And I felt I wasn't supporting my child because I've got all this knowledge. I've got all this experience. Why isn't she talking to me? Because I was her, it's now emerged five years later. I was her safe spot. She didn't want to talk to me. She wanted to play FIFA with me. She wanted me to take her to McDonald's and sit in the car and not talk about the therapy session she just had. And I had to accept that. But that's where friends, family, and if you don't have them, helplines like the Young Minds Parent Helpline come in, where Samaritans come in. You've got a safe space. Sometimes we are angry at our kids. I was angry at my child for being ill. How ridiculous is that? 
But actually, when you break it down, I'm angry at myself for not picking up on it sooner with all the knowledge that I had for missing things. But that's my stuff. And I can't put it on her because when I did, it had a negative impact upon our relationship. I think it's about being realistic in what you can offer. As a parent carer, it's keeping them as safe as possible. And at times for some parents, it will be accepting that their child is self-harming at the moment. So we're going to reduce the risk. Providing first aid isn't encouraging self-harm. It's keeping them safe. And then letting them know where they can go to seek support when they're ready. And that can take days, weeks, months, and sadly even years for some people. But as long as they know they can come to you, that's good. So seeking support when the child is ready, not when the parent demands you must go to the doctor tomorrow. Yeah. Please do not get me wrong. I've done it. You know, I'm all uh, all about honesty. I'm not bloody perfect. You know, I've got all this knowledge. And the first thing I did when my daughter was having panic attacks and Cam said the waiting list was too long is drag her to a private counsellor. And we don't even have money. But trust me, I found that money, £60 a bloody hour and dragged her down there. And after five sessions, I mean, the council could have told me after three, but after five sessions, she rang me up and said, I don't think this is useful. She just talks about school. She wasn't going, she wasn't, she was simply going to shut me up, which was detrimental. I'm there thinking, yay. And she's just thinking, whatever, you know, and I had to wait and I backed off and I said, right, what's the issue? She goes, well, I don't like her. Two is after school, I can't be asked. I want something at the weekends. And she actually preferred a male. And it took, sadly for my daughter, she ended up getting quite ill before she got better. But it had to be in her time and she wasn't ready then. Obviously, if someone requires urgent medical attention, is proving great risk to themselves or risk of suicide, then obviously, you know, and at no point should you hesitate to call 999 if you're ever concerned. But it might be your child doesn't need any of them. They've disclosed to their friend that's self-harming, who knows they're going to snitch to the teacher, who knows who's going to call you, because they didn't know how else to tell you that the pressure of school's too great, or they're really struggling with a divorce, or the cat dying had a massive impact upon them, or they hate the way they look. And it's simply their method of communicating. Why couldn't they just come and say it at tea time? Because what we expect is, I'm, a, I'm fine, I'm good, yeah, everything's all right, a grunt. Sometimes it's hard to have the conversation. So see what you're dealing with first. And if you don't know what you're dealing with, it may be that they're just not ready to talk about it yet. So you maintain safety, but at the same time, talk to school as well. I know a lot of parents can be scared of saying things at school. They don't want to be judged. I've noticed this, no disrespect to children of independent, um, whose kids are in independent schools, but I see that a lot in independent schools. There's a greater fear of the stigma of being a bad parent. It doesn't matter whether it's state or independent, talk to your school because the support package should be whole. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah no, that's, no, that's so, so helpful. Um, yeah. Obviously, we've, we've, I think we've more or less done with our questions. If anyone is, is watching the live uh, stream, if you've got any questions, please um, obviously fire them away. Um, and if you're watching afterwards and you have a question, do pop it in because... Um, hopefully one of us will then see and be able to give some support otherwise other parents are likely to have been through similar things and be able to give you support we do have a fantastic community here who really look out for each other so please do <laughs> not try and deal with this all on your own if you need to talk to someone there are plenty of us around that you can reach out to yes and um, is there anything that you 
would normally cover that we haven't asked about that we think you think we should mention or anything um, else? I mean, there's so much, you know, this is no disrespect on how it's been 45 minutes, but it is a very short session. You know, it's, it's a very complex topic. I think just being aware that it's not a unique set of experiences that leads someone to self-harm. Let's not pigeonhole young people. Year nine's puberty, year seven school transition, year 11's GCSEs, year 13's A-levels and you, no. There are common experiences from research that affect that age group, which is academic pressure, body image, social media, bullying, sexual gender identity. But there's six things. For one kid, it could be my parents got divorced when I was four. Didn't really bother me, I thought. But now with the transition of primary to secondary, puberty and starting to form my own first relationships, it's had a massive impact. For another child, it could be one thing. For another seven, don't be looking for a bigger reason as a parent. Because sometimes parents can look for justification for the self-harm. Why the bloody hell is my little Sammy cutting themselves to the point of needing stitches? What on earth have they gone through? And Sammy turns around and says, it's because I don't think mum loves me as much as my little sister. People might go, no, Sammy's hiding something. Why? Why can't that be Sammy's distress? What do we need to hear? Think about it. Because what are we saying then? We need to hear Sammy said, I got raped. Would that make you go, oh, boom, that's a big thing. Distress is subjective. Tick. Yeah. yeah, you know, distress is subjective. And don't, you know, dismiss the child's distress. You know, just because when I was younger, I did blah, blah, blah. Or you've got four other children who managed absolutely fine. Why is this one different? Well, why is it that me and my siblings can watch the same film and one of us cries, the other's laughing, the other's falling asleep? We're just different people, you know? Mm. So do keep yourself in check in regards to that. Yeah, well, it's just the same as with adults. The, the stupidest little thing can wreck your entire day because it winds you up. And if you tried to explain to someone why you were in such a bad mood because, I don't know, you had to try and make a phone call to the bank and sat on hold for half an hour, but the rest of your day was totally fine, but that one thing, such an impact. Somebody yeah. else would totally not get that. Mm. It doesn't yeah. make my feelings any different at all about it. Yeah. yeah. So it's important to remember that, you know, that we're not looking for something more. So the kid then feels unheard. Well, I told you and he didn't bloody listen, you know. So and remember, they may not be ready to disclose. I didn't talk until I was about 24 years old. because so I just felt that people weren't listening or making assumptions as to why I was going through the distress. It took me a long time, you know, to break down barriers. So give them the space. And I know it's frustrating. And trust me, I know it's painful. But we have to, you can't, you can, as they say, lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You mm. like to sabotage your relationship. Yeah, so just being that safe place for them, really, I think, yeah. But thank you very much. I mean, some fabulous advice yeah. there. So uh, very, very much appreciated. And um, very much needed. Yeah. And I've mm. certainly learned a huge amount. I mean, the yeah. list of um, well, different ways of that teenagers harm or teenagers, you know, children of all ages harm themselves is is frightening. Yeah. And I have to add just yeah. before we close, you know, parents might go, well, OK, my child's self-harming. What else can I suggest? And, you know, alternative strategies and stuff. <laughs> but the websites and apps that I give you, they will have alternative strategies. You might have heard of things like pinging an elastic band, writing on your body with a marker pen. Please note, don't just go up to your child and go, I've been on a session, heard a podcast, stop cutting, burning, scratching, ping this elastic band on your wrist. So that's like me coming up to you going, don't drink that wine, ping an elastic band. You're probably going to knock me out, yeah? You need to explain that there's 
you're not looking for a different way to cut or burn or tie ligature or overdose. You're looking for a different way to match the functions of the self-harm. So a different control, a different distraction and release of self-punishment, pinging that elastic band, distraction, control, release, throwing a stress ball against a wall instead of punching it, a release, a control. So it's about looking for different function, ways of meeting the functions, not a different way of doing the behavior. Yeah. Whew. Well, that was, that was intense. But <laughs> it was a lot in one short session. <laughs> yeah. But so, so useful. I mean, even as as teachers where you know it's part of our duty of care to, to watch out for things, we've, we've never had quite such a, an amount of detail, which is a real shame, but possibly because we weren't in those roles at school. Yes. But it's more important that everyone knows. It is happening now. Yes. You know, all staff are getting invited. I make a point on my courses anyway. I'm, I don't just want pastoral and senior management. I have all staff um, mm. right the admin catering everybody because anybody who comes across a child should have that basic knowledge yeah indeed yeah well thank you so so much for your time um, right. massively Thanks. appreciated yeah. and um and again if anybody has any questions uh, we'll make sure we pop in the comments if you're watching this on the facebook live some different links and if you're listening to this on the podcast later we'll put some links in the show notes for useful resources and, and places to go for more information so massive thank you again no, thank you very much thank you.